director of the Center for Hebraic Thought in New York City, where our sole purpose is to elevate the biblical thought world within the church and the academy. The Bible speaks, but it also thinks in unique ways about the world. It teaches us to think about everything under Kohelet's sun. And the biblical authors invite us to think with them about the nature of reality, justice, logic, knowledge, governance, beauty, and much more. Theologians have long recognized that to speak about God is to speak in metaphor and analogy. Our God talk can only represent aspects of his character, his actions in history, his understanding, his abilities, his presence, his desires, his disgusts, and so on. However, my colleague Yoram Hazoni notes that the biblical authors chose metaphors from the land of the living, as he says. In our book together, The Question of God's Perfection, Hazoni says, quote, God is envisioned as a king, a lover, a father, or as a speaker, or as breathing his breath upon the world, or as an eagle, or as a fountain of living waters, end quote. When we talk about God and metaphors as a perfect being, from where do we draw our metaphors? Mathematical notions of infinity or statistical analysis or geometry or maybe somewhere else? But if not from math, then where are these metaphors rooted? We were privileged to have the Reverend Dr. Peter Lightheart with us at the Center for Hebraic Thought at the King's College in New York City to guide us through these difficult theological waters. This is a public lecture where he introduces us to the topic and offers some guiding points for thinking about the perfection of God. Thank you, Drew, and uh, thanks to you all for coming out this evening. I'm sure that you have plenty of other things you could have been doing on a Friday night, but I suppose very few of those had free food and drinks available. So I understand why you would come to this event rather than some other event. Uh, it's a privilege for me to be speaking at the uh, Center for Hebraic Thought. I've been excited by what Drew has uh, created here uh, since I heard about it uh, a year or a little bit more ago. I've been able to get to know Drew. He came down and did a course for us in Birmingham last spring, and I got to know him and his obsessions and interests when he came down and taught for us. I've admired his written work over the last several years. Uh, he's been doing some very interesting work uh, on uh, the biblical theology of ritual and sacraments and some other topics that I'm very interested in. Uh, so a lot of our interests overlap, and it's a privilege to be here. My, my podium keeps adjusting. I'm going to be standing with my back to you shortly, I think, if it keeps rolling as it does. So I'll try to keep it in sync. Uh, before we begin, let's, be pray to, let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that in him all things hold together. We thank you that he is the living word, and we thank you that he has been spoken in our history, in the incarnation, in his death, resurrection, and ascension. We thank you too, Father, that you have spoken throughout the centuries, and that word is recorded for us in Scripture. We thank you that that word not only teaches us about you, but it reveals to us how to think about the world and engage with everything around us. We pray as we uh, consider these things this evening that you would teach us and guide us by your Spirit, and we seek to uh, please you and honor you in all that we think and say and do. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let me begin with a catechism question. This is from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, 
Some of you may have grown up with the Westminster Shorter Catechism. If you grew up in a Presbyterian church, this would be the catechism that you would have learned. Early on in the catechism, the question is asked, what is God? What is God? And the answer is, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in these various different attributes and attributes and perfections. If you analyze that catechism answer, and we're trying to look at, uh, evaluate it by comparison with Scripture, you would find biblical justification, scriptural justification for the things that that catechism, question, catechism answer tells us about God. God is a spirit. Well, John 4 tells us that. Jesus himself says that. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is unbounded. He's not limited by anything. He's not constrained by anything, and so he's infinite. God is not, it has no beginning and no end, and at least in that sense, he's an eternal God. And he's wise, he's just, he's holy. All these things in uh, the catechism answer can be found in the scriptures. And yet as we contemplate that catechism answer, I think that we begin to recognize that that answer to the question is missing some things. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. One of the obvious things that it's missing is the, the claim that God is love. Jesus says God is a spirit, and that's what the catechism pulls out of John 4 and uses it kind of the master statement, God is a spiritual being and not a physical being. But First John says that God is love, and other places in the Bible confirm that God is love. They don't say it in quite that direct way. But love doesn't figure into the statement that we find in the catechism. That You might say that love is a kind, of, a kind of goodness. It's a form of goodness. And when the catechism says that God is infinite and eternal in his goodness, it's telling us that God is love. But it doesn't actually state that. It doesn't state either anything that specifically... Christian, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Is this a God, for example, who has been incarnate as a human being, who's lived a human life and died a human death and risen to new uh, creation life, risen to life in the spirit? Is that the God we're talking about? We, we don't know from that answer. We've defined God without reference to the story of Jesus or the incarnation of the Son in human flesh? Is this the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons and one God? Well, we continue in the next couple of questions of the Catechism, we find that this God who's been defined as a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, so on, that God is, in fact, the God who is three and one, the God who is triune, we're told that a couple questions in the next couple of questions of the catechism, but the, the definition of God does not include that statement, doesn't include that information about God. It tells us who God is or what God is without telling us that God is three and one. We also don't see anything in this statement about the whole sweep 
of biblical revelation and biblical history. We can take isolated passages from the Bible and say, well, you can find a proof text for God being a spirit. You can find a proof text for God being infinite or a set of proof texts. You can find proof texts for God being wise and powerful and just and so on. But there's nothing about creation. There's nothing about the Exodus. There's nothing about God's covenant at Sinai. There's nothing about God's choice of David. There's nothing about God's long and uh, tortured history with Israel that takes up a large chunk of the Bible, as you know, that long and tortured history that comes to a climax with Israel, the Jewish leaders at least, putting the Messiah to, their own Messiah to death. That long and tortured history doesn't, doesn't enter into the definition of who God is. And yet we believe, as evangelical Protestants, we believe that the Bible is God's own self-revelation. This is how God has decided to show himself in the world. He reveals himself in Jesus Christ. That's the living word. Come into our world, coming into our flesh, and showing the character of God within our own life, within a human life. But he's also spoken. He's spoken through many centuries. And the Bible claims to be the record of that speech, the record of what holy men who were uh, carried and carried along by the Holy Spirit have written down. This is how God has chosen to reveal himself through all these events of the Old Testament and into the New Testament. That's how God has chosen to describe himself, and none of that appears in that short answer to the catechism question. Of course, catechisms can't answer everything. They can't say everything about anything. The whole point of a catechism is that you're getting small, memorizable snippets of truth that you can spend, that you can, that you can get the basics, and then you can expand on that. But can we really say that we've gotten the basics of who God is as he's revealed in Scripture when we're missing the incarnation, when we're missing the Trinity, when we're missing that whole history of God's dealings with Israel? Can we say that we've actually encountered and defined the God of Scripture when we have answered that catechism question? Have we, defined the, uh, have we defined God in a way that's specifically Christian? Could that definition in the catechism question just as well fit with a Unitarian God? Could that be perhaps a definition of Allah, the God of Islam? Seems like everything that's said in that catechism answer could fit with Allah. We're left wondering how or in what sense this God, who is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and so on, how far this God interacts with us or has any kind of relationship with us or we have any kind of relationship with him. God is not defined in any kind of personal terms. So I think we can say that there are things lacking, and it's not just that things are lacking because a catechism question and an answer can't say everything, but I think things are lacking because the way that the catechism is going about its uh, teaching about God has, is making certain assumptions about what the Bible reveals and how the Bible reveals things about God. I think we can see this already in the question that's asked. If you were to, uh, if somebody were to say, tell me, what is your husband? What is your wife? What is your boyfriend? What is your girlfriend? I think rightly those kinds of questions, would be, we'd meet those questions with a kind of puzzlement. 
What do you mean, what? What do you mean, like, what do they do for a living? What kind of, what profession do they have? Well, uh, it's, uh, he or she is a human being. He or she is a male human being or a female human being. What do you mean, what is my wife? What is my husband? What you really want to know is who. But that's not the way the catechism asks the question. The catechism asks the questions with a what, and, a what question. He's trying to, it's trying to define a being of a particular kind, a unique kind of being. But it's not talking about what this being has done or his character uh, as revealed in his actions. It's trying to define him in a more abstracted way. Even the question, I think, gets us off on the wrong foot. And we can ask why that would be the case. Why would uh, the uh, catechism, writers of the catechism back in the 17th century, write a catechism that would ask the question in that way, what is God, and answer the question the way it does with all the gaps that we've been describing, uh, gaps that include, I'm arguing, most of what Scripture tells us about God. Why doesn't it say, who is God? Well, God is the God who created the world and delivered Israel from Egypt and in the, in the last days sent his son in order to bring us out of darkness into light and bring us out of death into life. How come it doesn't say that about who God is? Instead, it tries to define God in this abstracted way with a what question. I think one of the reasons for that, we'll be exploring this more as we go through the weekend, uh, through the uh, sessions tomorrow, put in another plug. Drew said, if you're really, really eager to come tomorrow, he can fit you around the table. Uh, I'm not going to try to answer all the questions that I'm raising this evening. I'm, go- I'm more going to try to set a framework for how I think the Bible addresses the kind of questions that I want to talk about tomorrow. I think one of the reasons why the catechism asks the question the way it does and answers it the way it does is a, a hesitation, even within the Christian tradition, a hesitation about the intellectual weight of the Bible itself. Does the Bible give us a serious, intellectually or philosophically serious description of God? Or does it give us a set of stories from which we have to derive a serious and intellectually rigorous understanding of God? Do you understand the difference? On the one hand, you're saying that the Bible, to use the the language of the Center for Hebraic Thought, the Bible thinks, and the Bible has its own thought world, and it gives us its own categories for talking about God, and we're uh, we're supposed to grapple with those as Christians, uh, and not to, to translate what the Bible says into some other idiom, or to extract from the way the Bible speaks about God and about everything else, extract from that into a different register, a kind of philosophical or metaphysical register. There's a hesitation, even among classic theologians, about the seriousness of the intellectual content of the Bible. And you see this in a lot of different ways, and again, we'll talk about this more tomorrow. But one of the ways you see it is by the use of the idea of accommodation. God has accommodated his revelation to, in some cases, the statement is that God has accommodated his revelation to the crude and sort of primitive understanding of ancient people. Ancient people couldn't understand the the more elaborate and more sophisticated ways of speaking about God that developed in, for example, Greek metaphysics and later in some parts of the Christian tradition. They couldn't have understood that. And so God accommodated himself to the capacities of the 
readers and the hearers of his word, the primitive and somewhat backward capacities. Uh, and so he told them stories. And he gave, uh, he described God in terms of poetry and in terms of imagery. But that's not really how God is. It's just the way God shows himself to the, us in the world in a way that we can understand, since we can understand God as he is. But that, uh, that way of describing what's going on in the Bible, I think, assumes uh, already that the Bible is not giving us an intellectually rigorous uh, theology proper, an intellectually rigorous understanding of God. And if that's true in the, um, in the Christian tradition to some extent, I'm not condemning the Christian tradition by any means, but if it's true in the Christian tradition to some extent that there's questions about the intellectual rigor of the Bible, it's even more true in the modern world where uh, the, especially the Old Testament is denigrated as not even being religiously serious. Uh, these are a couple of quotations that Yoram Hazoni brings up in his uh, book on the philosophical, uh, the philosophy of the Hebrew Bible, the philosophy of the Hebrew Scriptures. He cites Immanuel Kant, for example, who says this about the Ju- Jewish about Judaism. Ju- the Jewish faith was, in its original form, a collection of mere statutory laws, upon which was established a political organization. For whatever moral additions were then or later appended to it, in no way whatever prolonged to Judaism as such. Judaism is not really a religion at all, but merely a union of a number of people who, since they belong to a particular stock, it means particular racial or ethnic stock, formed themselves into a commonwealth under purely political laws. It's a very strange way of describing what we find in the actual texts of the Old Testament about Judaism. Sure, it's a polity, but it's a polity because God has entered into a covenant and given his law to govern them. You can't separate the polity of Israel from the fact that they are the, the chosen people of God. To say that that doesn't count as a religion because it has this political dimension is already to define religion in a way that goes contrary to the biblical definition of religion. But Kant sees the, the Jewish, Jewish faith and the Old Testament as not even rising to the level of religious thought. It gives us a series of uh, political laws. It gives us a series, as he says, in other, uh, in other places, it gives us a series of myths that we have to translate into kind of philosophical. It does, it does give us insight into the nature of the world and the nature of human experience. But it's uh, really a, uh, it's more of a, uh, we need to allegorize what the Bible actually tells us. Or this, uh, on the other hand, we have on the one hand moderns that denigrate the Old Testament and the biblical, uh, the Bible as a source for thought. And on the other hand, we have the elevation of the metaphysical tradition that begins with the ancient Greeks, the philosophical tradition that begins with Greece. Uh, there's an old book from the middle of the 20th century called the, uh, the uh, I think the Hellenic Captivity of Germany or something like that. And it's about the way that Hellenic philosophy overtook German intellectual life during the 19th century to such an extent that it uh, that it almost a, almost a kind of worship of the especially of of, of classical Athens, uh, and they adopted this uh, Greek and Hellenizing uh, this uh, Hellenistic outlook in specific opposition to the established faith of Christendom. So these are post Enlightenment intellectuals who no longer accept Christianity. And they're looking for some kind of alternative, 
some kind of alternative intellectual system to the system of Christian doctrine, and they find it in the ancient Greeks. And so you have the rise of uh, classics as a, a serious course of study. Of course, everybody read the Greek and Roman classics before this, but they, uh, in Germany during the 19th century, you have the rise of classics as a serious form of study as an alternative to the thought world and intellectual world of the, of the Bible. Uh, Hazoni quotes from uh, von Humboldt, who was a, a German uh, a university reformer and intellectual who says this, knowledge of the Greeks is not simply pleasing, useful, and necessary to us. It is only in them that we find the ideal with which, with, sorry, the ideal which we ourselves would like to be and to bring forth. Athens sets the idea, the ideal. Although every other period in history enriches us with human wisdom and human experience, we acquire from the contemplation of the Greeks something more than the earthly, something even almost divine. So in the, in, in the modern world, you have this simultaneous denigration of the biblical tradition and this elevation in Germany and from Germany to other places of the Hellenistic tradition. And that just exaggerates some of the ambivalence of the Christian tradition, which already is not, uh, it's not clear in its embrace of the intellectual world of the Bible. And there's a tendency to treat the Bible as if it were a kind of theology second class, at least, again, in some sectors and in some ways. So that's the background to what I want to talk about uh, this evening and tomorrow. And the, the question that's been posed is, is God perfect? I'm not going to answer that question tonight. If you really are interested in the answer to that question that I want to give, you'll have to come back tomorrow. And once again, if you do want to come back tomorrow, Drew says that there are a couple of spaces left. But tonight I want to talk about the kinds of things that the Bible uh, gives us as material for answering that kind of question. And it's not the kind of material that we would expect to find if we're looking for a certain kind of doctrine of God, if we're looking for something that has more of a, a, a Greek or a metaphysical tone to it, we're not going to find that in the Bible. What, what do we find instead? The premise of what I'm saying is this, that there is an uh, inseparable connection between the form and the content uh, the form in which something is expressed and the content of what is expressed. Those two things can't be finally separated from each other. So, you, you know, poets, poets talk about this all the time. You ask Mr. Eliot, what does the wasteland mean? And Mr. Eliot says, April is the cruelest month. Breeding lilacs. Out of it. No, 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 Mr. Eliot. I asked you what it meant. You're just reciting it. What does it mean? April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain, etc., etc. Okay. For a poet, you're not going to be able to extract the meaning of the poem from the way that is expressed because the meaning comes in the full expression of the poem. It's not just some kernel of truth or a summary. It's not a Cliff's Notes. Spark Notes, that's what everybody uses now, right? Because it's online. Or Cliff Notes are probably online now. It's not the Spark Notes. That's not what you want. You want to get the full impact of the poem. And that means uh, not only the, uh, the content, there's meaning in the words that, that Elliot is using in the wasteland. There's, there's semantic content in the words, but there's also sound. And there's rhythm. 
And all the different elements of the poetry are working together to communicate something more than you can get in a summary. The spark notes will not give you the wasteland. You will not have the same thing. You can, you can have the same semantic content. You can, you can paraphrase the first lines of the wasteland. Uh, but if you're paraphrasing them, then you're losing something because part of the meaning, part of the impact is the way that it's said. And uh, that's true in general. The, the, the form and content are inseparable. Um, any language use is uh, part of it uh, depends on an, an inseparable union of form and content. Uh, you doubt that. Uh, you try to eliminate the visual form of a written text, scrape away the visual form of the written text and get to the meaning of the text that's separate from, distinguishable from the written form. You know, scrape the ink off the page and then you can get away from the form, the visual form, and you can get the actual... No, that doesn't work because you're scraping away the form, you're scraping away the words, and the, the content is communicated through the words. Or you can do it with the spoken language, of course. Try to get what I'm saying by not listening to the actual sounds that I'm making. Maybe some of you are already doing that. <laughs> You've already given up on trying to make sense of the sounds I'm making. But you can't get to, this, you can't get to the content by eliminating the form and kind of pushing aside the form and getting to what the, uh, what the actual, what's actually being said. Uh, and uh, that's true of any kind of language use. Even the most technical kind of language use depends on visual forms in written language or audible sounds. And the form and the semantic content, the form and the meaning are inseparable from each other. But it's even more so, again, with poetry. Uh, when you when you have a uh, something that's skillfully put together that a writer has written in order to not just say what he wants to say but say it in the way that he wants to say it and say it with the the same the kinds of rhythms and sounds that he wants to use to communicate it all of that working together is part of the meaning of the text part of the impact of the text and I want to suggest that the Bible's mode of revelation is closer to poetry than it is to uh, what we think of as metaphysics or a scientific kind of treatise. The Bible is closer to poetry in the way that it's communicated. And you can extract, as the catechism question does, you can extract a summary statement about what God is or who God is. He is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and so on. You can extract that, but you can't extract that without loss. That's the, the, the catechism is giving you a kind of a spark notes theology which can have its uses. You know it has its uses. I can see a lot of students out there. When you're cramming for an English test, I know, I know, you look up the spark notes just so you refresh your memory about what you've been studying. You, you can admit it to me. Don't admit it to your professor, but you can admit it to me. That can be useful. If you're getting just ground floor theology, a catechism, of course, is essential or, or is, can, be very, uh, can be very useful and important. But that's not the way the Bible communicates. The Bible communicates in a different mode. And I want to suggest three different, uh, three different uh, uh, ways that we see the Bible revealing God to us. The framework within which we can answer the question, is God perfect? Which, again, I'm not going to answer tonight. Um, but how would we go about doing that? What would we expect from the way the Bible is written? Again, on the assumption that the form of the Bible and its content can't really be separated. And so what we want to do is understand uh, not just the 
uh, the content of the thought in the Bible, but the form in which it's uh, presented to us. Uh, one of the things we find in the Bible, as uh, Drew already said in his introduction, uh, citing uh, Yoram Hazoni's essay on uh, the perfection of God, the, the Bible speaks of God in images. It speaks of God in poetry. God is, as uh, Drew said, a king. Uh, God is uh, a light. God is light. That would be just as biblically founded a statement uh, for the catechism answer as God is spirit. You could say God is light, and you could extrapolate from that. That's an that's explicit statement in 1 John. God is a rock. Um, that's a, a recurring motif in uh, Deuteronomy 32, the, the great song of Moses at the end of Deuteronomy. God is the rock of Israel. And Deuteronomy 32 is one of the most widely quoted passages in the entire Bible. Uh, it's all over the place in the Bible. And that, that uh, designation of God as a rock is uh, all over Scripture. God is a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then the psalmist goes on to describe the various ways in which God is like a shepherd. And Jesus elaborates on that in his Good Shepherd uh, discourse in John 10. The Bible uses imagery and poetry to describe who God is. And this, again, is a place where we find the Christian tradition being somewhat hesitant to simply take that as uh, basic and, and try to reason within the images and try to reason from the images. Those images are treated as, and they're uh, literally, they're anthropomorphisms. That is to say, they're descriptions of God in terms of human forms and human institutions and human categories and offices. And so, uh, or, or cosmomorphic. You know, uh, God is a rock, God is light. Those aren't human capacities or human uh, characteristics. It's not a human office, but they're things in the creation and God is being compared to those things and God is being spoken of in terms of things that come out of the creation. He's being spoken of uh, according to the form, morphe, of uh, man, anthropos, or of the world, cosmos. Okay. So, uh, and that's been used as a way of kind of downgrading those statements. That's just an anthropomorphic statement about God. It doesn't get to God as he is in himself. It doesn't get to some, something closer to the literal truth about God. That's just an anthropomorphism that, again, is accommodated to our capacities that's intended to help us understand how, what, who God is with our, with our limited capacities. Uh, but I think what, that, what that, uh, that designation that these are anthropomorphisms misses is that there's a theology behind the anthropomorphism. There's a theological assumption that the whole creation is theomorphic. The reason why human beings can be used and human activities and human offices can be used to describe God is because we're made in the image of God. There's a natural created analogy between who God is and who he's made us to be. These aren't, these aren't, uh, this isn't a lesser way of speaking or some kind of primitive way of speaking. This is uh, grounded in the most basic reality of the world, that is, that we are created in the image of God. Anthropomorphism, the fact that God can be uh, spoken of in human terms, is based on the fact that we are theomorphic, that we're made in the form and image of God. And the reason why God can be described as a rock or as a light is because God created the world to reflect and manifest his glory. The whole That's the basic reality of everything. That's why it's created to be 
a manifestation of his glory. And so everything properly points to God. There's nothing improper about saying God is light. There's nothing uh, less serious about God saying, saying God is light. That's not less serious than saying God is spirit, just because you're talking about a created substance. That there's a match because of the way God created the world. That poet, the poetic language of Scripture in talking about God uh, is there because God created the world in order to be a, a display of his glory and created us to manifest and to mimic his glory. So a, an answer, biblical answer to the question, is God perfect, is going to be one that is trying to reason within and from the various images that the Bible uses to describe God. A second, uh, a second thing that we find in Scripture, again, a framework for understanding or answering the question, question like, is God perfect? And that is story or history. When, if, you were, if you'd ask the Bible, who is God? You get answers like, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's uh, the beginning of the Ten, the ten Commandments. Uh, God, before he gives the Ten Commandments, he, uh, he introduces himself to Israel, reintroduces himself to Israel, and he identifies himself by reference to events that have just happened in Israel's history. I am that God. Or, who is God? Who is the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ? The God of the New Testament, the God of Jesus Christ, is the one who raised Jesus from the dead by the power of the Spirit. That's who God is. Again, a definition, not a, maybe not a definition of God, but a designation of God in terms of something that happened in history, in terms of a short snippet of narrative. That's who God is. God is the God of Exodus. God is the God of resurrection. God is the God who has had this particular history with his world and with his people. And in fact, uh, curiously and quite profoundly, God takes up the names of some of the characters of that history and makes them part of his own name. You don't find any of the names of patriarchs in that catechism answer. I, I, don't, I don't know how many of the names of the patriarchs you actually find in the Westminster Shorter Catechism at all, which would be interesting to figure out how many, exactly how many are mentioned. Uh, when God identifies himself again at the burning bush, for example, I am who I am, yeah, yes, but also, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's identifying himself as the God who has chosen Abraham, made promises to Abraham, reiterated those promises to Isaac and Jacob, and now in the Exodus is keeping those promises, bringing Israel up out of Egypt, bringing him into the land that he promised to Abraham. That's the God we're dealing with, a God who identifies himself by, by reference to events, and identifies himself by reference to characters within the story that he's part of. I'm that God. It's, it's like trying to identify a friend. You have a school friend. You have two school friends named Sarah. Uh, have you seen Sarah today? Which Sarah? What are you going to say? Well, you know, the Sarah who does thus and such, the Sarah who is in this class, the Sarah who is from this town. You can tell a little snippet of narrative in order to identify Sarah. That's how you identify people, by their stories. And that's how God identifies himself, by the story that is told in Scripture. 
And uh, these are, um, uh, the story that the Bible tells is a dense story, one that is, that kind of resists any attempt to uh, uh, simply abstract certain doctrinal or moral truths out of it. What do I mean by that? Uh, I mean that all of the different uh, topics of theology and philosophy are packed together into a biblical into the biblical narrative. And you think about the uh, the uh, the narrative of Genesis one, the narrative of creation. Uh, if that if all Genesis one wanted to do was to reveal to us that God is the creator of of everything, Genesis one one would be sufficient. Why not stop there? Right, sure would have prevented a lot of debate and heartache and headaches through the centuries. Trying to interpret those days? Come on, people have been disputing about those for millennia now. We're still disputing about it. Why didn't he just stop at verse 1? And what is verse 1 anyway? Is that a statement about God? Sure seems to be. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Is it a statement about heaven and earth? The statement about God's relation to heaven and earth, yes, all those things. The statement perhaps about, in some sense, a statement about time in the beginning, that there is the begin, the, the universe has an origin and a, a beginning. It's not an eternal reality as it is in many ancient philosophies and mythologies. Uh, there's no account of the origin of God, so it's telling us something about, about God in contrast to the idols of the nations who all have origin stories, just like your superheroes. The gods have origin stories, theogonies. Uh, the ancient myths are not just about the origins of the world, they're about the origins of the gods. They don't have that in Genesis. So it's telling us something by just by introducing God and naming him without any kind of background. Where'd he come from? We never told. Okay. So is Genesis 1-1 and the rest of Genesis 1, that creation narrative, is that about God? Is it about creation? Is it about... Uh, uh, the physical things that we encounter in creation, sun, moon, and stars, is it about plants? Well, it's about all those things. You say, well, I, would, I just want to know what this is telling me about creation. You want to extract the doctrine of creation out of Genesis 1. Well, you can do that. But it's like trying to extract the meaning of the wasteland out of the poem itself. You are extracting something from a much denser story. And I think what the Bible teaches us to do is to try to interpret the density of the story and try to meet, we have to, we have to pick it apart in some fashion, but we don't try to simply extract the basic, the basic nuggets, you know, the basic nugget of Genesis one is God, the creator of everything. Well, that is a nugget, but it's saying a whole lot more. If it was only saying that it would have stopped much earlier than it does. And we would have uh, far fewer things to, de to debate about. So the Bible presents uh, uh, gives us a theology, a doctrine of God. It asks the question, answers the question, is God perfect? In the context of teaching us about God through images and poetry, through stories, and uh, that second uh, uh, imp implies the third, which is that it uh, teaches us about God in, through, in and through the course of time. Uh, this, again, is something that I'll talk about more tomorrow. But the uh, ancient myths uh, and ancient religions and philosophies are generally ways of trying to escape from the ravages of time. Time means change. Change is ultimately death. Change can't be good. It's better to be changeless, but we can't find anything changeless in this world. So we try to find something changeless in another world. Maybe that's some deathless world of the gods. 
the gods are immortals. That's what makes them gods, that they don't die and they don't go through that final change. So he finds some solid place to stand by ascending out of this world of change and time into the world of the gods. Or if you become a philosopher, you're doing the same thing, but instead of finding the world of the gods and finding your rock of ages in the world of the gods, you find it in a world of forms. There are, uh, there are forms of things in some other realm, in the, intel- in the intelligible realm, uh, in which this world of change and sensible things participates. But the real solid things, the lasting things, the permanent things are outside this world. And so if we're going to have a solid place to stand and we're going to have assurance within this world of change, we need to find some way to access that timeless reality beyond this world. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the move that uh, ancient religions and ancient philosophies make. The Bible doesn't do that. From the very, very beginning, the Bible shows us a God who is creating, a, creating time, creating the, the patterns and the rhythms of time, but then fully working within the times and patterns, uh, the, the rhythms and patterns of time. Not estranged from or evading time. We don't have to escape from time in order to find this God because this God is in time all the time. And especially he's in time when he comes into the fully into our time and lives a human life uh, as the incarnate son, Jesus Christ. That's a very different understanding of who God is uh, than we find in most ancient and modern philosophies. But that's the way that the Bible uh, uh, encourages us to think about these things. Uh, let me end with a challenge that comes from the late Lutheran theologian Robert Jensen. Robert Jensen spent most of his career thinking about God and time and God's relationship to time. Uh, And in one of his last essays, he laid down this challenge. The the essay is called, Choose This Day Whom You Shall Serve. It's a line obviously taken from the book of Joshua. Joshua is laying this before Israel. Are you going to serve the the Baals? Are you going to serve the true and living God? Are you going to serve Yahweh? the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jensen has laid out that kind of gauntlet to theologians and to students of the Bible. He says, it's time to deliberately choose between A, attributing decisive ontological weight to the overall narrative character of the Bible and to the plot of the story that it does seem to tell, that's A, and not A, holding that one or both of these cannot or should not bear such a burden. A, that choice, is to take the Bible and the way the Bible communicates as having final ontological weight, telling us the final and ultimate truth about who God is and what the world is. That's the A choice. The not A choice, and I should say, for for Jensen, that A choice involves reckoning with the narrative as part of the foundational ontology, the foundational truth about God and things. That narrative is the is basic. That's the A choice. The not A choice is that that narrative is a pointer to something else, and that we ultimately have to move away from the narrative of the Bible. We have to move away from the poetry and away from the anthropomorphisms. And in order to answer questions like "Is God perfect?", we ultimately have to go into some other some other mode of discourse, some other register, some metaphysical or philosophical understanding of God. Uh, I think Jensen is right that that's a that's a kind of fundamental choice. That we have before us, I think the the center of her break thought is uh, 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 charting a pathway for uh, 
uh, laying out a certain version of the A uh, position, that there is decisive ontological weight to the Bible and the way the Bible tells about God, the way the Bible describes the world, the Bible tells us how to think uh, about God and about everything else. Thanks very much. Be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave us a review wherever you found us. Want to learn more about Hebraic Thought? Visit our website at hebraicthought.org.